the Dallas Morbidity and Mortality and ESRD conference held in 1989 is heralded as a meeting that changed the direction of care of patients who undergo renal replacement therapy, principally dialysis. This conference is one of the most widely quoted and resourced in ESRD care. Last year, a follow-up conference was convened to determine the medical and non-medical determinants of outcomes in the ESRD population as well as assess what progress has been achieved in ESRD care during the past two decades and understand the roots for change. The Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology published a supplement to its December issue to summarize the proceedings of that conference, titled ESRD, State of the Art and Charting the Challenges for the Future. In this episode of ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim interviews pertinent thought leaders on the objectives and results of this worldwide meeting. In this conversation, William N. Bennett, MD, editor of the Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, Jonathan Himmelfarb, MD, of the Kidney Research Institute at the University of Washington, and the two meeting co-chairs, Tom Parker, MD, clinical professor at UT Southwestern, and Ted Steinman, MD, of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. From a policy perspective, and this is a question for both Dr. Steinman and Dr. Parker, if coming out of the conference you could make three recommendations to address this issue, what would those those recommendations be? We actually had five categories, uh, Todd, of recommendations. One was infection and AV access. Two was cardiovascular disease. Three was inflammation and nutrition. Four was the dialysis dose. And five was the first year of care. We then sort of stratified those in in your bang for the buck. If you're going to get the most change in outcomes, then we've got to deal with infection slash AV access and cardiovascular disease. But the other two, uh, the other three are, are important also. Dr. Himmelfar, Dr. Parker mentioned the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and I'm wondering if you could describe the role that the Medicare program has in caring for patients with end-stage renal disease. Well, the Medicare program has been absolutely instrumental in the end-stage renal disease program since 1972. In 1972, landmark legislation was passed by which, for the first time, really related to any major disease process, if an American citizen was Medicare eligible, then the government would assume the cost for providing that care for end-stage kidney disease services. Those are inclusive of both dialysis treatment but also of kidney transplantation. So the growth in the end-stage kidney disease program and almost all of the change that has happened in the succeeding 40-odd years, almost 40 years now, has all been uh, with Medicare as the primary payer and therefore directly involved in the management of how care for patients with advanced kidney disease has changed. And can you just describe the proposed changes to how Medicare would pay for ESRD care? Well, since many decades ago, Medicare has paid in essence in a capitated or fashion for bundled care for patients receiving outpatient hemodialysis. I'll focus on dialysis primarily for this part of the discussion. So that a variety of services that are related to the dialysis procedure itself are bundled together and paid for on a per-treatment basis by Medicare. That 
basic concept will not change, but with passage of legislation called the Medicare Improvement for Providers and Patients Act, or MIPA, passed last year, what is included in the bundle will change, and that will change care for dialysis patients substantially. The major fundamental change that will take place is that for the first time, medications that patients receive that are associated with their dialysis care will be included in the bundled payment. So in essence, medications become part of the capitated uh, payment for dialysis services. That will have a significant impact, presumably upon the the way that medications are used, hopefully in a cost-effective way, to still produce uh, high-quality care. But it's a fundamental change in the way that reimbursement will take place for the dialysis procedure. So, Dr. Steinman, in terms of the conference, how did twin issues of, as you were looking at the issues related to the current state of ESRD care, and you knew about the the MIPA legislation and the proposed bundle, and in terms of your discussions with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, how have you tried to reconcile all those factors? What we pointed out was basically our poor outcomes in the United States as compared to the industrialized world. And therefore, what is the genesis for the problems? With regards to cardiovascular disease, we put undue attention and inappropriate attention on coronary artery disease thought to be related to aberrant calcium and phosphorus metabolism. And while that's an issue accounting for maybe 20% of deaths and morbidity in the ESRD population, the major elephant sitting in the middle of the room is left ventricular hypertrophy, enlargement of a heart, with then its subsequent consequences of congestive heart failure and arrhythmias. We've paid virtually no attention or very little attention to this issue that's been sitting there that accounts for up to 60% of the death rates in patients on dialysis. Dr. Parker, I was actually just going to ask you if you could sort of describe with some detail what we should be measuring. You know, 70 to 90 percent of people enter ESRD with LVH of some form, and we don't know how many of those have associated cardiac fibrosis. Well, it turns out that conventional dialysis, conventional in-center, three-and-a-half-hour, four-hour dialysis, resolves less than half of those patients with uh, LVH. So we're left with this enormous population. And if you look at why patients go into the hospital, it's not with MIs and it's not with coronary ischemia. It's with pulmonary edema, congestive heart failure, and all of those things. So we've got to handle the volume problem on dialysis. And the volume problem cannot be corrected with three-and-a-half to four-hour dialysis. So that gets us to one part of the discussion with CMS. If you look at those indicators, somehow when Bob Wolf and his team came up with this marvelous concept of standardized mortality rates, SMRs, and standardized hospitalization rates, SHRs, it was a great way to measure what we're doing. But at the same time, people were developing clinical performance measures, you know, Somehow the DOKI guidelines got uh, transferred into performance measures. CMS picked up on those. 
And somebody along the way decided, well, if we get all the clinical performance measures in place, then the SMR and the SHR will change. Well, that was a total disconnect. Uh, we worked on those. We got everything in the right box, and the SMR and the SHR did not change. And the reason it didn't is that we're looking at the wrong clinical performance measures. So our whole approach to CMS was, or is, how do we get these clinical performance measures aligned in such a way that it really will change SHR and really will change SMR? I guess then, as I'm listening to this, one of the fundamental challenges in the field of kidney disease in general, in the SRD care in specific, is sort of the misalignment between the, the clinical practice measures and the guidelines and um, what's best in terms of patient care. And if, if that's a reasonable sort of observation, I guess, Dr. Hemelfarb and then Dr. Bennett, how would you confront this problem based on the outcomes of the conference that was, was hosted by Dr. Parker and Dr. Simon? Well, I believe that one of the major problems that we face in terms of improving the care for dialysis patients is to have a sufficiently high rigorous and rigorous standard of evidence for our clinical practice recommendations and for our clinical practice guidelines that it's relatively unequivocal that if those guidelines and clinical practice recommendations are instituted, that benefit will occur. As Tom pointed out, even when clinical practice uh, guidelines and performance measures were achieved, there was a disconnect between ultimate outcomes and those measures that we're using. And I believe the fund one of the fundamental problems that we have is that we simply don't have the standard of evidence from large, uh, well-designed, well-executed, randomized clinical trials to provide that standard of evidence and that confidence that interventions that we make will have the desired outcome that many other fields in medicine have. Just quickly on that point, is the lack of the standard of evidence, why has that occurred? It has been noted that in kidney disease, over a four-decade period, roughly four decades from 1966 to 2002, an analysis that was published in the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology noted that the number of randomized clinical trials that were conducted in kidney diseases was less over that extended time period than every other field, every other medical subspecialty. So as a field, we have not conducted a large number of randomized clinical trials including the dialysis population, so we don't have the kind of evidence that we would all like to have that could tell us that a given intervention would reliably improve the hospitalization rate or improve uh, mortality or death risk for people that are on dialysis. So we're forced to use observational data, which we do have wonderful observational data from data sets such as the United States Renal Data System that were utilized in, in the Boston Conference, but there is always the potential in observational data that there is something else that accounts for the differences that are seen. The technical term would be bias or confounding in the data. And so we can never be convinced simply from observational data that we know what the right intervention is that's reliably going to improve outcomes for dialysis patients. So we desperately need more clinical trials of a variety of different types of 
devices and treatments and pharmacologic agents and strategies, all based on sound hypotheses to see if we can find those that really have the best potential to improve outcomes for dialysis patients. And I think that until we start conducting systematically those types of clinical trials, we'll always lack the rigorous standard of evidence that we all desire so that we can give the best care for our patients. Todd, I guess where John and I might disagree is given that we have 350,000 people or so on dialysis, do we have to wait another five to ten years to implement some of the changes that we think might help uh, based on the observational studies and based on non-randomized uh, uh, trials? And, and John would take probably a more pure stance than I would, higher Ted would, I think, and we would say that the preponderance of the evidence is strong enough that we believe that we should change the CPMs and we should start down the course of using some of these more rigorous measurements for outcomes and hold the facilities accountable for those. And measure that what we are measuring is effective and is appropriate. So we have to have, we put guidelines in place and we never really went back and looked at the validity of the guidelines 10 years after it happened. Essentially, it was still the same guidelines. So what we want to make this is a much more flexible, ongoing issue. We believe these are issues that need to be addressed, like Tom said. Now let's measure them, and then let's see if we are truly measuring things that make an impact. Uh, so I, we would like to make the system a little bit more fluid and flexible rather than if we wait until we have 100% of the information available, which would be ideal, we've waited too long. Dr. Bennett, which side of this debate do you fall on? <laughs> I think there's elements of truth in both ways of thinking about it. If you go back and look at clinical practice in the United States of dialysis, a lot of it was based on opinions and opinions of experts that got together and if you're a cynic, like I tend to be, not without the input of some of the people who stood to benefit by certain ways of doing things, namely the dialysis quality initiatives process. And what I think this conference pointed out, that some of the questions that were and assumptions were, that were made in those guidelines that were developed were fallacious assumptions based on not a lot of evidence, but what was logical. And now, as we've had a chance to watch people try to meet those standards, such as one that came out at the conference that just comes to mind, is the dose of dialysis based on uh, KT over V, turns out is relatively unimportant. And yet there was a huge focus and lots of time and money spent on hitting targets for that. And so I think what this conference brought to mind was there is an urgency to make changes. We need better evidence. And I come back wearing my hat as the editor of the journal. I think that the society, through its publications and its education efforts and its journals, should try to stimulate and serve as the forum for some of these discussions. Changing the rate of catheters, reducing inflammation, encouraging nutrition, those are things that do need evidence base, 
but they're achievable and I would encourage investigators to look at every aspect of clinical care of kidney patients and ask, is this the way we should be approaching it? And if not, how can we do it differently and better? And the results of those investigations, I think it's encouraging because it opens up so many questions that young people interested in careers in clinical research can get involved in. And there are large databases that you can tap into, or you can do traditional clinical research. Todd, an opportunity for the ASN uh, might be we have a conference call with Dr. Straub, and the context of that conference call is, well, if we are, if CMS is going to look at uh, what you're asking us to look at, how might we do that? And one of the venues we've considered is to have what we're calling sort of a summit conference. We're not going to use the words consensus conference or stakeholders conference because they have specific connotations. But a summit conference, just to address some of what John Himmelfarb is discussing, what is the real, real state of the science as we reduce the conversation down to those things that really make a difference, catheters, infections, inflammation, left ventricular hypertrophy, fibrosis, volume overload. If we could get a handle on that and if we could figure out an objective way to change that, then I think CMS is willing to take an interim step to perhaps make those some type of CPM. Um, They have enormous power to do this under the new MIPA regulations, but they, I think, would like to see that it comes from a source that is bigger than this small Boston conference. And that, and this is but maybe, I shouldn't say the tip of the iceberg, but it's not the only issue. Maybe it's a very large part of the iceberg, but we haven't addressed the issue of inflammation and malnutrition. There's a whole, there's a lot of work being done in this area. Can we decrease the amount of inflammation and malnutrition that definitely impact on cardiovascular disease? So the impact on cardiovascular disease comes from several fronts. There's the whole issue of ultra-pure water. We never even spoke one thing about water in this issue, but there is data from Europe that the use of ultra-pure water decreases major complications in the hemodialysis population. So there are major steps to take initially and then followed up with a whole series of steps to look at the total care we should deliver to this patient population. I'm going to urge caution again uh, in this. We and the so-called experts have been wrong so many times before in this field. We should we should take note of a couple things. Uh, one, that a lot of the clinical practice guidelines and performance measures were based on what seemed to be fairly robust data, for example, that the dose of dialysis as measured by KTV urea uh, was related to outcomes over a broad range of KTV, of delivered dialysis dose. There was a tremendous amount of observational data that suggested that was the case, but it didn't bear out in the HEMO study. We also, getting back to the issue of left ventricular hypertrophy, thought that it was related to uh, anemia and that more would be better in the treatment of anemia because it would improve left ventricular geometry and we accepted the lack of a placebo-controlled trial to demonstrate benefit with the use of erythropoietic stimulating agents for a good 20-odd years before 
uh, Mark Pfeffer and colleagues had the courage to do what was in essence a placebo-controlled trial in the chronic kidney disease population and essentially show no overall benefit and some potential harm for the use of ESAs. So uh, we, as long as we assume that we know the answers and that we can translate those answers into clinical practice guidelines and performance measures without requiring the same rigorous standard of evidence that people in cardiology or oncology would require or other fields before saying we know that this is going to improve the outcomes for patients, we run the risk of going down the same road that we've gone down for the last 20 years and discovering to our dismay that we really didn't have it right. So I think we should insist that our patients get the highest standard of evidence and we should unite as a community uh, to require those kinds of trials be conducted that really truly have the potential to show us the way to reduce adverse outcomes for our dialysis patients. Jonathan, I don't think we're suggesting we do one to the exclusion of the other. I think we're suggesting that we could march down these paths in parallel and then we could implement some changes while the trials are going on. I don't would never ever suggest that we not 100% get behind uh, trials. I don't I would say that either. And what I just said previously was let us hold our feet to the fire. And I, I said at my feet and everyone else's feet to the fire. If we make a suggestion, go back and revisit at a much more frequent interval of everything we've done, John, to hit the rigorous approaches you so correctly have emphasized. None of us want anything other than the most rigorous approach. But let us look at that rigorous approach at a more frequent interval and not the 20-year hiatus you just obviously very appropriately and very nicely emphasized about EPO. Right. I think we would all agree with the need for a frequent reassessment of what is the quality of the data that we have, what appear to be the knowledge gaps that we have, and how can we best fill those gaps in such a way to improve outcomes. So how is the the cardiology community or the oncology community address this issue more effectively than, than the nephrology community? Is there a major driver? Um, I'm just trying to, to figure out why we're in a different place perhaps than other specialties. I think there are probably a lot of factors. One is that there's a broader perception that cardiac disease and cancer are major healthcare problems in the United States. And there has been both more NIH support as well as more industry support to conduct the kinds of clinical trials that give you the standard of evidence that you need. Because we all know that conducting these clinical trials is very, very expensive. So there's been more support for clinical trials. I think the community in those fields has also insisted on a higher standard of evidence before implementing clinical practice changes than we have done in nephrology, and that's to their credit. So that... Uh, to get new drugs really implemented into clinical practice or new devices, there often has to be a higher standard of evidence than we've insisted upon in the past in the kidney disease community. I'm sure there are other factors as well. Part of the reason that we have such a low proportion of clinical trials is that we have such wonderful basic science investigators in kidney disease, and we want to continue the kind of basic science investigation that has the potential to really develop new cures for kidney disease. But perhaps over time that occurred at a cost in terms of the robustness of clinical research. 
I think because we had such good observational databases like the United States Renal Data System, we became very reliant on the tremendous amounts of data we had from observational data, and we made the assumption that that would be translatable into improvements until we found out, as Tom Parker pointed out, that even when we uh, implemented changes based on those patterns that we saw in observational data, that didn't necessarily translate into improved clinical outcomes. The only thing I would add to what John said, Todd, is that there is a perception that with the fixed reimbursement for hemodialysis in center hemodialysis, that if a trial indicated that there would have to be an increase in that reimbursement, the unlikely that it would occur. And so the, the, the industry sort of said, gee, why should we put money and effort into trials if we don't have a chance of uh, having the science uh, be reimbursed for the expensive therapy? I think that's but, a very but, good point, Tom. But, but that think, hasn't happened in the U.K., correct? In the U.K., with you know with the standard payment system and it, with it being covered, uh, many of these issues don't arise. And that if we looked at our results versus Europe, say even in general in Western Europe, we have a, a 1.36 relative risk of morbidity and mortality in our population as compared to that in the U.K. And that difference disappears completely with catheter. If you discount catheter use. There's no difference between Western Europe and the United States. If you factor in for catheter use, one gets a relative risk of 36% greater morbidity and mortality in the United States. So uh, the issue is why haven't we done better? Let's look at ourselves in the mirror. Why have we not done better with our access? Why do 82% of patients who initiate dialysis in the United States initiate dialysis with a catheter, even in those who may have a fistula or a graft created that is not sufficient to be used at the time of initiation. No other industrialized country has a rate nearly as high as ours with regards to catheter use. And unless we address that issue, we're going to be swimming upstream for the next several years. This is Bill Bennett. Another factor is that I don't know the exact percentage, but a sizable percentage of patients dialyze in units that are owned and operated by large dialysis organizations. The incentive to do things that will not contribute positively to the bottom line is minimal, yet the vast majority of patients who could participate in clinical trials as to what treatment is better than another treatment, or what strategy works better than another strategy, dialyze in those units. And the medical professionals' relationship as medical directors of those units is not necessarily strongly focused on the research aspects of improving dialysis for those patients. And maybe a function of the ASN could be, and the government, could be to incentivize clinical, practical clinical research using this huge population of people, not just their data, but the patients themselves, to ask in a controlled way some of these questions that we just simply do not have the answer for. How do others feel about that proposal? 
I support Bill, what Bill said very nicely. You know, 64% of patients uh, dialyze uh, in facilities owned by just two companies. Fortunately, we now have chief medical officers of both of those companies who do believe in investigation and do believe in science, uh, Alan Nissenson and Ray Hakeem, and I think we could easily get the support of them uh, to sit down and I know they're both and they were both were highly supportive of this conference of the outcomes uh, they participated in the letter to uh, CMS uh, you know which even went somewhat against uh, the posture of their business models and so they think they're real opportunities Todd to uh, these companies to uh, help us solve some of these problems perhaps with the uh imprimatur of CMS to provide some support for the concept of those units or programs that would participate in research pointed at improving patient outcomes would get some sort of special consideration on the reimbursement side. I mean, that's just off the top of my head, but it seems to me like we have that many patients dialyzing in those few providers' hands the government could certainly speak as to the importance and provide some incentives for answering some of these questions. But if pointed out to them, I think that really the large dialysis, all the dialysis companies actually do want to do the right thing. Yeah. So part of it is that they weren't privy to all the knowledge that none of us were until this conference kind of brought out to everyone's attention the real major deficits of care and what is a pathway to improvement. At least what we wanted to do is kind of start the initiative towards a pathway to improvement. It's captured people's attention. I think, Todd, uh, that Ted and I feel like we've been a, a catalyst to get people thinking about the right things rather than the traditional model. I mean, we would love to have someone like ASN to take this to the next step. This is not something that a couple of guys can carry. <laughs> this is a big deal. So... Uh... Uh, way that we could collaborate. Tom and Ted, you both pointed out in the C. Jason supplement on the conference that the mortality rate for the dialysis population is higher than that of a number of people with metastatic cancer with a number of different types of metastatic cancers. And certainly in the cancer field, uh, there, are, there are cooperative oncology research groups that try to systematically attack the problem with study after study after study in an organized clinical trials network. And based on, I think, what I'm hearing from you and from Ted and from Bill, an equivalent clinical trials network that uh, combined the assets of the investigator community, CMS, and the dialysis provider community might be a wonderful way to drive this whole field forward now that you guys have catalyzed this discussion. Dr. Parker, I'd like to give you the last word. If you were to hold a similar conference in 10 years, what would the discussion be so that you knew that, that this conference was successful? In other words, 10 years from now, if we were to make progress, how would you measure that progress? I would say that uh, hospital days had decreased from 16 to 8 for this population, that the that the mortality rate had gone from 22% to perhaps 14%, that we were delivering a type of dialysis that gave patients a much higher quality of life, that 
I think I'd be satisfied with that. Dr. Steinman, Dr. Parker, Dr. Himmelfarb, and Dr. Bennett, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you very much. ASN Kidney News is a publication of the American Society of Nephrology. The ideas and opinions expressed by participants in ASN Kidney News podcasts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the society. To lead the fight against kidney disease, ASN helps its 11,000 members provide high-quality care to patients, conduct cutting-edge research, and educate the next generations of kidney care professionals. To learn more about ASN or Kidney News, please visit the Society's website at asn-online.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.